Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. Every February, we um, do a series around relationships at Awaken Church. And I, I love that we do because Jesus said, for this they will know that you are my disciples, how well you love one another. And so actually Jesus says that your best witness the thing that will convince people around you that you follow me is not your level of devotion. It's not how many hours a day you read your Bible. It's not how many Greek words you know or Hebrew words or whatever. Actually, the greatest evidence of you following Jesus is how you relate to other human beings. And I love that at this church, we teach you how to relate to other human beings. And, you know, in other churches, and God bless them, you know, trying their best, it's like, Everybody knows the difference between the Greek word dunamis and exousia, but then they're getting divorced and their kids hate them. And it's like, who cares? Who cares that you know all the Greek whatevers and, you know, the path of Paul's missionary journey as he traveled through wherever, but your life is an absolute disaster and everybody around you doesn't like you. You're not doing it right, all right? And so here at this church, we talk about relationships a lot. And every February we focus on it. So we, you know, had a, Katie and I were in the hot seat um, last Wednesday uh, talking about uh, marriage. We're going to be um, having a, a panel around family and parenting in a couple weeks. And, um, and I love that we do that. But I'm actually going to not do any of that. And I'm going to talk about the most important relationship, which has to come first for all that other stuff to work, which is your relationship with God himself. The relationship between a creature and the creator. And so the title of this message is The Preeminent Relationship. I know it sounds big and scholarly and, you know, don't worry. It's going to be simple and really practical. Don't, yeah. I don't know why I called it that. I should have done it. That was a mistake. <laughs> Whatever. <clears throat> We're all trying our best. Come on. And so um, come with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to read this kind of pretty bizarre interaction that God has with a man named Abraham. And there's just some weird things that happen. If you don't really kind of, you know, get a little bit of historical context around this, you're like, okay, this is super weird, and I don't want to be a Christian anymore, okay? But don't worry. I'm going to explain it to you, and you're going to still want to be a Christian. It's going to be awesome. And, uh, you know, I think it's easy. Um, Jesus was the very first man in history to refer to God ongoing as Father. Very first. Okay, so in, in the Old Testament, there's a couple. I think there's two instances where um, uh, I think it's, they're both in Isaiah where um, it's written, Our Father, only twice, where, you know, the, the, the writer is, is sort of referring to God as the father of all of Israel, all of the people of God kind of collectively. But Jesus Christ was the very first person in all of history to refer to God as my father, which is beautiful. Jesus calls God father, you know, ongoing. And so I think it's, it can be easy, you know, and most of us pray, you know, I father God and, da, 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 and, and our heavenly father. And so we refer to God, most of us, as father, which is beautiful and, and good. And I'm not saying we should stop, but the final illustration of the relationship between God and us is actually not parent-child, it's husband and wife. In the book of Revelation, 
John has a, a vision and, and Jesus uh, speaks to him and, and talks about us as his bride and him as the bridegroom. And so actually the best picture for how we are to relate with God is not parent-child, it's husband-wife. But it would be super weird and creepy if you prayed, heavenly husband, I thank you today. So we don't do that because that's just weird, okay? We just, we pray heavenly father. But we wanna, I wanna talk through that relationship between us and God, what it's supposed to look like. And you're gonna leave here today, I'm gonna give you just some of the most practical, like, daily ways to walk this out. And I want you to actually leave here today with something that you can do on Monday in your life different in your relationship with God. But to get there, we gotta give a little bit of backstory. Um, and again, you know, wanna explore this idea of, of sort of this marriage being a picture of our relationship with God. And marriage is a, a, a type of relationship that we would call a covenant, okay? A covenantal relationship. And it's kind of a, it's a strange word because we don't really use it at all ever anymore. It's not really a modern word. Never in modern English would you just say like, hey, what's up, man? You wanna have a covenant together? It's just, it's become a little outdated and archaic and we use contracts. So in, in business, you enter into a contractual relationship with somebody and we just don't really use that word covenant a lot, but it is literally foundational to understanding the God of the Bible is this relationship, a covenant. So we're gonna read Genesis chapter 15 and just buckle your seatbelts. It's a little weird, it's a little gross, it's a little gruesome, but it's gonna make a lot of sense. So Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse one, we're actually gonna read the whole chapter. We can do it. Come on, it's gonna be on the screen behind me, but if you've got your Bible, that's a good thing too. Here we go, Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And I love that. God comes to Abram and says, hey, you know, the God of the universe, like, comes to him and says, hey, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And Abram's first inclination is to complain about what he doesn't have. Is that not indicative of the human condition? And so the very first thing he says is, Lord God, what will you give me seeing that I go childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, and this is, indicative of the mercy of God, right? If I was God, it would be cool. Lightning bolt, boom, I'm, do I'm doing this to somebody else. But God, God just sort of glosses over the complaints and just kind of marches on through, and I love that. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this is verse four, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham, Abram believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him as righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And so Abram is saying, okay, that all sounds awesome, but like, prove it. Like, how, how, what assurance do I have that this is actually gonna happen? And this is the meat of, of this passage. And so this is where it gets kind of weird. So Verse nine, so he, God, said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Weird. Verse 10, then he brought all these to him. Abram cut them all in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Gross. 
verse 11. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then God said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. What he's talking about is the exodus out of Egypt. That's going to happen several years down the, down the way. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces of the animals. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, all the ites are all there, uh, and the, the, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. And, and that's the, uh, the end of the passage there. So very weird, very, very weird. And you're just like, what in the world is going on? So God has this conversation with Abram. There's this weird thing where they take some animals, they cut them in two, make like a little like aisle out of them. And it's just pretty bizarre, okay? Pretty bizarre. But what you have to understand is um, this was actually very common practice in um, this day and age. And it was, so like, you know, when we enter into a business contract, so my company right now is negotiating a, a big master services agreement is what it's called with a, with a big corporation. And so our legal team and their legal team are going back and forth, getting all the terms together. And then when it's, when we're all set, then I'll sign my name and the other company, whoever their representative is, will sign their name. And so then we've entered into this contract, right? And so us putting our name on it is like, you know, I will, my, my name is what is going to hold up, you know, my end of the agreement. Um, in Abram's days, the way that they entered into an agreement was through this ceremony. And they would, this is like, they did this all the time. They would literally take these animals, they would cut them in two, one half over here, one half over there. And then one member that was entering into this relationship would stand on one side and then the other member would stand on the other side. And then as a, um, to, to sort of seal the covenant relationship, one person would walk between the carcasses of the animals. And when he got to the other side, then this person would walk through. And what you're saying is, I will hold up my end of the bargain, you know, whatever the engagement was, and if I don't, may I be like these animals. May I literally be ripped in two if I don't hold up my end of the agreement. And so that's what's happening in a covenant ceremony. So if, a, if two kings came together and said, hey, we're going to form a treaty, and, you know, I'm going to provide you with land, and you're going to provide me with troops, or, you know, whatever the agreement would be, then they would have this ceremony. They would do this gross thing with the animals, and then one king would walk through, then the other king would walk through, saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may I be ripped in two. So that's the, the weight of this covenant ceremony, all right? And so that's what's actually happening in this engagement with Abram and God, okay? And so it's different than a contractual relationship, okay? In a contract, so like this one that I'm negotiating right now in my, my company, you know, we kind of bring our terms to the table. Here's what I will do. You know, my firm will do this, we'll deliver this, da 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 And then their firm is saying, okay, and if you do that, then we'll do this, we'll pay you this much, these are gonna be the payment terms, you know, blah, 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 blah. But if either one of us doesn't hold up our end of the agreement, that's called breach of contract, and then the other party can then say, okay, now that you have breached the contract, I would like to leave the contract, that's what a contract is. A contract is party A, party B, here's what I'm gonna do, here's what you're gonna do, and as long as we both fulfill those obligations, this agreement between us exists, right? 
A covenant says, here's what I'm going to bring to the relationship, but even if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I'm not leaving. That's the difference between a covenant and a contract. And that's, what, that's why, you know, around church we say that marriage is a covenant relationship. Because a marriage says, in, in a good, healthy, you know, godly marriage, it says, here's what I'm going to bring. You know, you make your, your vows on your wedding day. And, you know, sickness and health, richer for poor, you know, blah, 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 blah. It means that I will hold up my end of the bargain even if you choose not to. That's, what a, that's a covenant relationship. Does that make sense? So that's what this crazy weird thing with the animals is, and all of a sudden it kind of starts to make a little more sense. And so I want to look at um, a couple of different things. So three quick points. Uh, the terms of the covenant. Actually, point two will be living out the covenant. And then lastly, point three is rescuing the covenant. And so uh, point number one, I want to look really quickly at, you know, so Abram and God enter into this covenantal relationship. So what are, what are the terms? What does God bring to the table? And what does Abram bring to the table? And we actually see that by backing up a little bit to Genesis chapter 12. And it's going to be the last little bit of, of Bible we read today. I know it was a lot. You guys are doing great. Verse 12, one through three. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verses one through three should be on the screen behind me. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in all uh, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So if we look at that and we break it down, there's really three main promises, three main uh, provisions, terms that God is bringing to this covenant, covenant relationship, and it's land, descendants, and blessing. Land, descendants, and blessing. So that's what God is offering. He says, okay, we're going to enter into this covenant relationship, and I'm going to provide to you land, descendants, and blessing. And land, you have to understand, you know, land in the Bible is symbolic of so much more than just physical territory. You go all the way back to the beginning and Adam and Eve are in a garden in a physical piece of land and God says, okay, I want you to work this land. I want you to till it and do all these things. But what was special about that land that God gave to Adam and Eve is it is where God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, the Bible says. And so land signifies a place where God's presence is made manifest and he walks and dwells among his people. So actually land, the promise of land, is actually a picture of God saying, my presence, like I will be with you. And descendants obviously speaks to, to legacy and, um, and, and uh, you know, your name kind of being propagated throughout the earth. And then blessing is God's unmerited favor and protection over your life. So that's what God says. Okay, we're going to enter into this covenant relationship. Okay, so we're going to do the whole ceremony thing with the animal carcasses. It's really gross. Here's what I'm going to bring. I'm going to bring land. I'm going to bring descendants and blessing to you. And I love it because if you read the passage, what does Abram bring? Nothing. Literally nothing. There is not one stipulation that God demands of Abram to bring into the covenant relationship other than just being willing to enter into the relationship. That's it. God says, I am going to prosper you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And you know what I expect out of you? Nothing. Nothing. Go read it. Like there is, there's not one thing that God says, Abram, this is what I need out of you. Doesn't demand his worship, doesn't demand his obedience, doesn't demand sacrifices, doesn't demand anything. Just that Abram is willing to enter into a relationship with him. So it's kind of crazy. You could say, oh, 
wait a minute. So if I start a relationship with God, I don't have to obey him. I don't have to do anything he says. I can, so I get all the upside and none of the downside. And no, no. You, yes, technically you can enter into a relationship with God and it's not dependent on your obedience. You're not required to obey, but you should obey. And I'll tell you why here in just one second. I would also argue that if you are actually in a covenant relationship with God where you truly understand the magnitude of his love for you, understand what he's done for you, um, understand all that he provides for you, that it's actually impossible to live a life of ongoing, sustained disobedience. I think if you actually understand what has actually been purchased for you, it is impossible. You may have seasons, and I've, I mean, I've had seasons of like whatever, wrestling with whatever thing, and, um, and, and that's, that's, that's kind of part of it. But as far as just living a life of just flamboyant disobedience, I don't think that's possible. To, if you truly understand what has been purchased for you in this covenant relationships. Now, you don't have to obey, but you should obey. And I'll give you a quick little example. I have a seven-year-old son. His name is Zeke. Um, and uh, I don't know, probably like three months ago, I started this thing with him. And I said, okay, Zeke, um, every day I want you to try to find a way to do 25 push-ups, okay? I don't care how you break it up. If you got to do five sets of five, you know, if it's like if you do five right when you wake up, do five after breakfast, you know, I, I don't care, whatever. If you got to do sets of one, whatever. And so then I like, you know, I was like, okay, first let's, I showed him how to do a push-up. And at first it was, it was embarrassing. I was like, you know what, never mind, cancel the whole thing. Like, you know, butt up in the air. It was actually really funny because I, I, you know, I was like, no, son, just let, let me show. So I get down and I'm like, all right, butt down, you know, or don't, don't let your butt be too high. Your butt. And I kept using the word butt and we're not allowed to say the word butt, but I was just kind of in like fitness coach mode. And I look up and both Everly and Zeke are looking at me like this. <laughs> and I'm like, it didn't even register. And they're like, dad, you said butt. Like, oh, yeah, it would be really weird if you were in the gym and your coach is like, okay, bottom down, bottom down. Anyway, so I show him how to kind of, you know, do an, an, a proper push-up. We get that figured out. And it's like I didn't, it was, what he doesn't understand is that I'm thinking so macro about his life. I am trying to break generational curses of unhealth, of obesity, of, of lack of physical discipline that comes through our family line from generation. He has no idea. He just knows his dad is trying to get him to do push-ups. He doesn't see what I see. He doesn't see that this is me instilling in him a, a, a life, it's not about the push-ups, you know, it's about the, about self-mastery, it's about self-discipline, it's about caring, about, you know, your, your you know, being a, a good steward of, of the temple we've been given. And if, to him, it's just, it's whatever, right? My dad's told me, and like, I didn't, I didn't, if he would have not done it, it, my love for him wouldn't have changed, I wouldn't have disciplined him, I wouldn't have punished him, I would have just been like, okay, well, that didn't work, I'll, I'll try a different approach. And I would have just tried something else to integrate those kinds of things into his life. But, for whatever reason, he just like really took to it and just every single day started doing these 25 pushups. And, I, and it would, even when he knew I was, or even, even when he didn't know that I was watching, but I was watching, like I'd, I'd see him in his room and he would, he'd wake up and he'd, he'd get out of bed, he'd do five pushups and he'd put on his socks, he'd do five pushups, he'd put on his pants, he'd do five pushups, he'd put on his shirt, do five pushups, and then he'd do whatever else and do five pushups and he'd be done. And I would like watch him do it. And so as his father, when I saw him obey me, 
even though he had no idea of the greater implications of what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to instill in his life, when I saw his obedience, I just was like, it made me like, it made me, it pushed me to, to spend more time with him. More, so then it was like, after he got that down, and now it's like, it's pretty impressive. My seven-year-old son can rep him out. Like, I'm like, okay, come on. And so then it was like, I was like, okay, hey, now I want you to do 25 push-ups and 25 air squats. And so we took some time. I showed him how to do a, uh, an appropriate air squat. And then he's been doing that and got that down. So then I found this little 10-pound dumbbell. And so now he's doing 25 push-ups and 10 goblet squats is where you basically hold a dumbbell and do a squat. And I'm just kind of slowly. And now I'm like, I'm like, I want to spend all this time with him around fitness, and it's just turned into this fun little thing for him and I, and I'm, I'm gearing him up for, um, we're going to do this little fitness Saturday where we're going to run to Tidelands Park in Coronado, and, and I'm going to do 100 push-ups with him, and it's going to take him forever, but I don't care. I'm just going to be, we'll do 20 sets of five, and I'm just going to sit there, and, 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 and his obedience hasn't changed my love for him. It hasn't changed anything, but it is actually it has motivated me to want to spend more time with him. And then now I'm like going crazy. I started looking up like kids squat racks and I want to get him like a little bitty, you know, kids squat rack. And so like my affection for him, I want to, I want to buy him things. I want to spend time with him. I want to, and it's because of his obedience and it's, his obedience is so, it's so little. Like, again, he doesn't know, like I didn't sit him down and say, son, obesity runs in your family line and type one diabetes. We're going to break the back of that generational stronghold over you right now, son. It wasn't anything like that. I just said, hey, I want you to do 25 push-ups every day. And he just blindly obeyed. And because of that, my affections are so stirred for him. So that's why you should obey. All right? You don't have to. Don't have to. If Zeke would have done nothing, wouldn't have changed anything. He still would have been my son. I wouldn't have been like, oh, wow, no 25 push-ups. You're living outside. Figure it out. Right? Didn't change my love for him, his sonship, but it stirred my affections for him and made me want to bless him. And that's why you should obey. You don't have to, but you should. Can somebody say amen? amen. Okay. So those are the terms of the covenant relationship that we have with God. God is going to do everything. You're going to do nothing, and you get to be with him. It's a pretty good deal. Pretty good deal. Now, I want to actually talk out talk about point number two is living the covenant. So all that, you know, great. Sounds beautiful. Sounds awesome. A little weird with the goats being ripped in half and whatever else, but we worked through that. But what does it look like on Monday morning? How do you actually live this out in a, in a day-to-day fashion? I want to leave you guys with some just incredibly practical things. And the first thing, and the reason I went through all that mess in point one is for you to understand that you bring nothing to the relationship. God is not won over or impressed or you don't put him in your debt when you read your Bible. It's not like you, 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 know, you do a 30-minute quiet time. You're like, okay, God, now you owe me. It doesn't work like that. You, you, you're bringing nothing. Like when you pray, when you read your Bible, when you worship him, when you, when you do all of these things, it's not like you are, you're not bringing that to the relationship. That's actually overflow of your affections for him. Okay, so what I want to first of all break is this idea that God is happy when you do your devotion and mad when you don't. That's not how it works, okay? And so I used to, I, when I was a brand new believer and, and, and you know, was at a, a different church with, with different teaching, I, I, every day I thought God was, it was like every day I woke up neutral. And it was like I either, you know, do my 
devotion or, you know, make good choices and that gets me on the positive side and now, now God's happy with me or I make a bad choice, I slip back into something I used to, you know, um, struggle with or I don't do my devotion and then I'm on this side. It's like, dadgummit, I, this day's ruined, I gotta wait till tomorrow and, and try again. It's just this ongoing rat race until you realize the Bible says in Peter that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That means when you're a Christian, you wake up every day righteous. Like you don't wake up neutral and then have the opportunity to be righteous or to be unrighteous. You're just righteous. When you brush your teeth, that is a righteous act. All right? When you shave, it is a righteous act. You are doing righteous things because you are a righteous person. Oh, man, battery at 10%. Oh, danger zone. Um, and so that's the first thing I want you to understand is that your devotional life is not a bargaining chip with God. It doesn't, it doesn't buy you favor. It doesn't make him more happy, more. It's actually, it's just a, a, an overflow of your, of your affections stirred for him. And so again, knowing that God, that the picture that God gives for his relationship with us most closely is a marriage relationship, think of it in terms of, of that. You have to understand how God likes to be loved. You have to figure out, you know, when I first met Katie, I had to learn how she likes to be loved. And as a man, you really quickly figure out, and here's what men try to do, we try to take how we like to be loved and love you that way. But that doesn't always work that way, right? You have to learn how your partner wants to be loved. And so I remember one time, like, you know, a couple years into marriage, I like made oatmeal for Katie in the morning and just on a whim, didn't even think about it. I just put some blueberries like in a little heart shape floating on the oatmeal. Yeah. Okay. See, that's weird. It was the most, I did it. It was thoughtless. I just did it super fast. Oh yeah. I'll make a little heart blueberry. Da, da. She talked about it for like three years as like the single greatest romantic gesture and I'm like, okay, either I suck and that's the best I can do or like, well, I don't understand why this has resonated so much. But I learned that for my wife, and this is my wife, I had to learn this about my wife. For her, it's little bitty um, exhibitions of thoughtfulness. That's what wins over my wife. Where she feels like in the, in the middle of my crazy day, my crazy life, all the stress, I take a moment and I think about her. So when I just... And it's amazing because now that we've been married for 13 years, I've, I've learned like the um, amazing return on investment of just in the middle of emails, I just stop and I'll take 15 seconds. Like, I'll write a text message. Hey, baby, just thinking about you today. I love you so much. I cannot believe that somehow I ended up with you. You're the best mother. You're the best friend. I love you so much. See you tonight. And I get back to my emails. And that to my wife is just like, wow, you, you, you took some time and just thought about me. But it took me a long time to learn that. And I don't know why. I'm just, you know, learning impaired, I guess. But, but you know, you, I had to learn how my wife likes to be loved. And you have to learn how God likes to be loved. And I think a really, really useful tool are the five love languages. Has anybody heard of the five love languages? So it's, um, it was a book written by somebody, I don't even know who, but it's just kind of become a pretty, you know, ubiquitous part of, of American culture is this, these, this idea of the five love languages. And the, if you don't know, not familiar, the idea is that every single human um, 
prefers to be loved in, in you know, one or a few of these different five love languages. And they are quality time, they are words of affirmation, acts of service, the receiving of gifts, and physical touch. And every man is easy, words of affirmation and physical touch. Just touch me and tell me I'm awesome and I'm good. I can live, I can live off of that for a long, long time. Okay, every woman is some Some of that of all five, okay? And your job as a husband is to unravel that and figure out which order, you know, it's like first this one, then that one, but on Tuesdays, make sure it's that one, not this one. Yes. So I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, trying to help some brothers out, all right? So if, if every human being on, on some level, you know, prefers to receive love in, in these sort of five different buckets. And you know, and every, you know, it's not like, like for me, the receiving of gifts is, is the lowest. I'm whatever, but it doesn't mean I, you know, you give me a gift, I'm still gonna be, still gonna be happy about it. You know, it's not, so it's not like I, you, you hate receiving love in these other ways. It just means how you prefer to be loved. But if God is, if we, say it this way, if we are made in God's image, if every single human being, the makeup of all seven billion human beings is all somehow this beautiful picture, a reflection of God, then it must mean that God receives love in all five ways, okay? And so I wanna think about those five love languages and how it practically relates on a day-to-day level with your relationship with God. So we're gonna march through them. Quality time. I have learned in my marriage that quality time does not mean proximity to my spouse, I used to think that if we were near each other, that was quality time because it's time together. And so we would like watch a, a movie together on a Friday night and then wake up Saturday, hey babe, I'm gonna go run some errands, I'm out here. And she's like, we never spend time together. I know, she doesn't talk like that. She doesn't talk like that. That's for dramatic effect. But I'm like, what do you mean? We watched like, all three Lord of the Rings movies yesterday. Like there's nine hours like right next to you. And so, but yeah, but it, we didn't talk about any, you know, so it's, it, I've learned very quickly that being near is not quality time, okay? And actually I've learned that quality time to my wife generally is me listening while she talks. In the same way, I'm not you, Kelly, I'm talking about my wife, all right? So you take it up with Jim. And so in the same way, like quality time for God is listening to him. And God has spoken through this. And so quality time, not just proximity, not just being near God, around God, quality time with God is reading the words that he has spoken, reading your Bible. And I wanna, I wanna sort of demystify this and I feel like there's this, and I want you to know as the, the pastor, okay, like I'm, but God has, for whatever reason, I have no idea why, has put me in charge of all of this, okay? And I want you to know that it's not, I didn't go to seminary. I didn't, um, I, it's not like I, I don't wake up in the morning and read the Bible for three and a half hours. Um, for the, we've been at this church for 10 years. And I would say for the first five years of my time here, it was very, very difficult for like a, a, a um, robust and healthy uh, life of reading the Bible was a wrestle. It wasn't fun. I had to like make myself do it. And I just, I would tell Katie that to me, reading the Bible feels like you're in a, a giant warehouse 
that's completely empty and it's pitch black, and I'm trying to find one tiny red button somewhere in there. It felt like you know, this is 1,200 pages of just all kinds of stuff, and it's like I'd wake up in the morning and be like, okay, I don't know. You know, okay, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Uh, got it? Okay, sure, yeah. And so for me, it was just sort of, it, it, it took me time to figure out how to read his word. And I will tell you the greatest, in, in my opinion, I'm going to give you a couple of like incredibly practical things. The one-year Bible, okay? And we actually have them for sale over there. And this isn't a sales pitch. If you don't want to buy them, then just get on your, your just download the Bible app on your phone. And they've got one-year Bible reading plans. But if you want a physical Bible, you can get them on Amazon. We've got them over there. I think it is incredibly practical and incredibly healthy um, and helpful for people who are trying to get an ongoing, recurring devotional life. And here's what I will say is practical wisdom. If you get behind you know, it's the daily, the one-year Bible is like you read every day. And it's like every day they've got, you know, a little bit of the Old Testament, some Psalms, some Proverbs, and a little bit of the New Testament. And on you go, you know, through the year. And, you know, if you get busy and you're traveling and you get a week behind, I think the temptation is, oh, my gosh, I'm seven days behind. Now I'm going to have to read, you know, two a day for the next seven days just to get caught up. Because I got every day is a new day that I got to read that day. But then, da, da, da. And you try to just, don't do that. If you get behind, whatever the day is, just read that, okay? Just read that. It's not about reading the whole Bible. It's about building into yourself an ongoing recurring habit of spending time listening to the word of God, okay? Now, if that for you is a little bit too much and you're like, okay, I don't even like, I'm brand new at this. I have no clue. A great resource is a book called Jesus the King. Jesus the King was written by a guy named uh, Tim Keller who passed away uh, about a year ago. And it just looks at the gospel of Mark. So in your Bible, in the New Testament, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four written accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. Both Matthew and John have a lot of, of quoting Jesus. And he says a lot. Like it's, it's all of his teaching. You know, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. And the son of man will not return until da 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 and it's a, But Mark is just a story of all that Jesus did. It's, it reads almost like a fast-paced novel. And so in, in this book, Jesus the King, Tim Keller just goes through the book of Mark. And so if you are brand new at the Bible and don't know where to start, I would suggest grabbing that book and just reading through the book of Mark with that as a little study guide to kind of help guide you and help you make sense of things. It will, to me, reading the book of Mark is, is easy. It's fast-paced, it's exciting. It's not just these big, long passages of Jesus teaching about, you know, this and that. It's just all the, the narration of what he did while he was on this earth. And so you must, you must find a way to have a devotional life where you actually read God's word. Not where you listen to other people talk about God's word, okay? That's supplemental and that's great. I listen to other people's sermons all the time, but that can't be the principal way that you interact with God's word. You have to find your own way of reading the Bible. Can somebody say amen? That's quality time. Words of affirmation. Words of affirmation to God is what we call praise. In the Bible, you, all the time it says, you know, his praise will ever be on my lips and praise this, praise that. I read this sentence that, that sums it up so beautifully. Praise is the joyful recounting of what God has done for you. That's what praise is. It's the joyful recounting of what God has done for you. And so when you're in your car, when you're in the shower, when you're talking with your wife, whatever, just remember with great joy some of the awesome things that God has done for you. And that's words of affirmation to God. And he loves it. 
and you say, man, God, thank you so much. I used to struggle with this, and I just thought there's no way I'd ever be out of it. And here, five years later, I, I just, I, it's so crazy. It's not even a struggle I have anymore. It's amazing. Praise you, God. You're so awesome. That's what praise looks like. Third is the receiving of gifts. Yes, God likes to receive gifts. It's a love language, and that is living a generous life. Jesus says that when you provide for somebody else, when you buy a meal for somebody, when you uh, are generous to, to another human being, that you actually are doing that unto the Lord. God loves generosity. When we bring our tithe, when we sow financially into the church, it's a gift. The Bible actually says that it's a sweet aroma that drifts up before heaven and smells good. Like God is up in heaven and when we give, he, he, oh, Gabriel, smells like grandma's pot roast or I don't know, something like that. Something that smells good. Okay, it actually, the Bible says that our giving is actually an aroma that drifts up. Acts of service. God loves it when his children serve in his house. And the beautiful thing is the Bible says that when you serve, Psalm 92, those who are planted in the house of the Lord will flourish so it's not just some you know, selfless act of love we give to God. Actually, when we serve in his house, it comes right back around and blesses you and you flourish when you're planted in God's house. And lastly, and this one's a little hard to, to explain, and I'm not gonna, we're running low on time here, but physical touch. Obviously, God is spirit. He is not physical, so we can't physically touch him in the same way that, you know, like my, my I can run my fingers through my wife's hair or whatever, you know, like that. But, the best way I've ever heard this described was by um, a man named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a, an English um, you know, theologian, and, and, and he said, imagine a, a father and a son walking down the street, and the son knows that he's with his father. They're not holding hands, they're not, they're not embracing, but they're just walking together side by side. And the son has the, the assurance that his daddy is standing right next to him, that he is safe, because if he steps out into the street, the, the father's gonna protect him. If somebody comes and tries to do something bad, the father's gonna be there to protect him. There's this assurance that, that, that comes just by walking with his father side by side. But then out of nowhere, for no reason whatsoever, the father will just swoop down and scoop up his son and hold him in the air, give him a big kiss and say, I love you, buddy, and then put him back down and they'll keep walking. And that is what the Bible describes as the manifest presence of God. The manifest presence. When, when the, you know, the Bible says that when, where two or more are gathered, there he is in their midst. So God is here right now. Now we don't, he's here in the sense of like, like the son walking down the street with his father. We have the assurance of God with us. We have the assurance of God's protection, but then there are times, and maybe it's, maybe it's happened to you in worship. Maybe it's happened to you when you've just been alone in the car where for whatever reason, the God of the universe makes himself physically felt by you, where you can, you, you can feel his presence in, in your chest, or maybe it's a tingling in your fingers, or maybe it's, it's, you're overcome with emotions, whatever it is, and you all of a sudden, you, 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 your, your five senses are infiltrated by the presence of God, and that is the manifest presence of God. That's the physical touch of God, and so we can love God by pursuing those moments, and I love it because they don't happen all the time. They happen, actually, I've found pretty rarely. But when you're constantly in pursuit of, okay, God, I, I want a fresh touch from you. I want a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. I want, I, that's you pursuing the physical touch of God. And those five things, those are the five love languages. Those are the, and I'm gonna tell you in closing, like just straight up 
what Mike's devotion life looks like. I do the one-year Bible, okay? And I'm, I, I do not read every single day, seven days a week. I do most of the time, but I have... I have a couple businesses, I have small kids, I have a church, and there's just days where for whatever reason it doesn't happen, I wake up late and I don't beat myself up and you know rip my robe and sackcloth and ashes and go into mourning or anything like that. I just pick it right up the next day where I left off, okay? No big deal. Um, then what I do, I try, I try, it doesn't always happen. Katie and I try to do that together. And Katie's doing something totally different. She's doing, she's just reading through the Bible as fast as she can, like the 90 day shred or something like that. And I find it super annoying because she's always talking to me about all this stuff. I'm like, well, you're ahead of me. Slow down, okay? But we try to do it together just because it, it prompts conversation between us. And she'll just be like, hey, you know, why, did, why do you think Saul said this instead of that? And, and the, way, the way I think about it is if you're dating somebody new and you go on a date and it's awesome and the butterflies and, you know, you want to go and talk about that with your friends, and your friends will be like, hey, how was it? How'd it go? What'd you guys do? What'd you talk about? Da, da, da. And then you're like, oh my gosh, da, da, da. he said da, 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 da. And, I, and I feel like when Katie and I talk about our relationship with God, it's like that. It's like us talking about interactions we've had with God. And it stirs up our effect, affections for him. And so we try, don't always get to it. Um, and then when I get to work, I pick one worship song and one like declarative kind of warfare song. And I put on the worship song and in my office, I close the door and I worship God, okay? And it's not, I, I'll close my eyes and I just begin, I start by just thanking him for as many things as I can think of. Then I, then I, I, I tell him and I say, God, you are worthy. And I tell him, you're worthy of my time, you're worthy of my money, you're worthy of my energy, you're worthy of my thoughts, you're worthy of my work, you're worthy of my life. And I remind myself that he's worthy of everything, that, I, that, that everything I have, I wanna offer before him. And I just, it's not me asking for things, it's not me, you know, breaking down strongholds, it's me actually just worshiping God. And I do that for one song. And as soon as that song is over, there's a, a warfare song that comes on. And that's where I begin to just pray and take authority over the things in my life. I pray for protection over my finances. I pray protection for my kids. I pray that angels would surround my, my household. I pray for an angel, you know, stationed at every single door and window of my house. I pray against any sickness. I pray for our church. I pray for you guys. I pray for new leaders to rise up. And that's more of just the declarative, authoritative thing. I do that for another song. And that's like five minutes. So it's like, you're talking 12 minutes of just focused worship and prayer, and then I dive into my day and I work. Then I use the car and the shower to listen to other stuff, okay? Because to me, it's dead time anyway. Like, I'm in the shower, I'm just, you know, getting clean, whatever, so I might as well just fill my ears with the word of God, so I'll put on a, a podcast, a message. I do that in the shower, in the car, not every time, but as often as I think of it, and that is the, the breadth and width of my devotional life. At this point in my life, one day I want to be able to wake up and spend three hours in prayer and, you know, pray in tongues for six hours and whatever. Maybe I'll get there one day, but that's just not the reality of my life right now. I got small kids. I got businesses. I got responsibilities, okay? And that's, that's what I've got right now, okay? And so I wanted to, I don't know if that's helpful. I hope it is. I wanted to sort of demystify, you know, a devotional life. I go to men's prayer and men's prayer is, is probably the most important part of my week because it's all of that, but with other men, okay? And then lastly, Katie and I, we pray together. I'd say we, we don't do it every day. We, we did for a season and we just, we need to get better. 
ready to get back at it. But I'd say probably three to four times a week, we start our morning and we just, we pray. And I love it because the kids see it as just a normal thing. Mom and dad walking around the kitchen and we just kind of circle our island and, you know, Katie prays for stuff, I pray for stuff, and then we say amen. And I love that it's, it's showing them, mom and dad or people that pray, all right? And so that is what my love life with God looks like. And we are very out of time. And so lastly, point three, very, very quickly, rescuing the covenant. And so if you remember the terms of the covenant, God does everything, you do nothing. The only thing you bring is just a willingness to be in the covenant with God. And I actually glossed over something intentionally that's so powerful about the story. And I wanna go back and look at it, Genesis 15. We're gonna close with this. If you can put... um, verse 17 back up. Uh, Genesis 15, 17. Perfect. And it came to pass, and I want you to look at this. When the sun went down and it was dark, behold, uh, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. And actually back in verse 12, which don't, don't worry about it. It says that Abram fell asleep, that God actually put Abram to sleep. And then we read that as the sun goes down, the presence of God passes through the pieces. And what is so, it's, it's, that is, it's unbelievable. Because remember in a traditional covenant ceremony, one party would stand over there, one party would stand over there, and one person would walk through, then the other person would walk through saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may I be ripped in two? And then the other person says, if I don't hold up the bargain, may I be ripped in two? But in this special ceremony between God and Abram, Abram doesn't participate. God puts him to sleep. And so what God is saying is if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may I be ripped in two. And if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, may I be ripped in two. And so what that means is that, and that's exactly what happened. If, if Abram chooses to not hold up his end of the bargain, which his end of the bargain was simply to desire a relationship with God. If he doesn't do it, then God must be ripped in two. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus Christ was God destroyed, ripped in two on our behalf. And so that's what's so beautiful about this story is thousands and thousands of years before the life of Jesus, God made a way for us, even if we don't hold up our end of the bargain, which is so insignificant. God asks for nothing other than just us wanting to be in a relationship with him, and we can't even get that right. But God made a way. God provided a way by saying, if even if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I'll be ripped in two on your behalf. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to this earth, God in the flesh, God entered humanity and was ripped in two. He was destroyed to hold up the provisions of the covenant so that we can be with him, that the covenant isn't ripped apart, that actually our relationship with God is intact. And so I'd love it if we just bow our heads and close our eyes as we come to a close. Is there anybody in here? And maybe, you know, maybe you've never heard it put like this, or maybe you grew up in church and kind of, you know, heard about God. And it's different to know about God than to actually know God. And all you have to do, the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that if anyone would just believe in him, 
that they will not perish, they'll have everlasting life. And is there anybody in here that just needs to, to, to do that, to believe in him, to actually accept that gift, to, to, to just acknowledge, God, I recognize that you were torn apart for my behalf, that I, I, I didn't get it right, I've, I've tried to do it my own way. I've tried to live my life, you know, on my terms. It hasn't worked out. It's, it's, it's brought me nothing but, but misery and pain and frustration. And God is offering a way for you to come to him and his death on the cross to make it all okay, to wipe away every mistake, to wipe away every sin, to wipe away every trauma. And all you have to do is simply accept it. And all that looks like is a very, very simple prayer. And so if that's you here in a second, I'm gonna to count to three. I want you to shoot your hand up and I'm gonna walk you through a very, very simple prayer there in your seats. And it's just a prayer of belief. For God so loved the world that, that um, he gave his only son, whoever would believe in him will not perish. And so I'm just gonna walk you through a simple prayer of belief if that's you. And maybe maybe you, you prayed this prayer a long time ago, but you've just fallen away, slipped away, life got in the way, and you, you know that God's calling you home this morning. Or maybe you just feel far from God and you know that he's, he's, he's bringing you back. If you're in any one of those categories of people, I want you to shoot your hand up on the count of three. One, two, three. Who needs to make that decision today? Anybody in here say, that's me, that's me. I see that hand over there. Awesome. Anybody else? I see that hand right there in the front. Great. Who else needs to pray that prayer there? Awesome. Over there to my left. I see it. Great. Anybody else? Beautiful, beautiful. Hey, why don't we all hop to our feet? Run short on time here. Anybody else? Real quick, just the last couple seconds. Beautiful, beautiful. Can we just give a big round of applause for those handful of people that raised their hands? So beautiful. I'm so proud of you. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm just gonna pray a very, very simple prayer and I want you to just close your eyes right now. Everybody in the building is gonna pray this. It's not just gonna be you on your own on an island. We're all gonna pray this alongside of you. And it's just a prayer of belief in God. So let's all pray this together. Let's say, dear heavenly father, I thank you today for sending Jesus on a rescue mission to save me. Today, I repent of my sins and I know that I am forgiven. I declare you have a destiny, you have an adventure for me. I am your child, you are my father. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com. Or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.